Hello and welcome to the 64th episode of the Machine Ethics Podcast. This episode we're talking with Andrew McStay, Professor of Digital Life at Bangor University in Wales. We chat about emotional human-machine interface, emotion face and voice detection, emotion detection and hiring, as well as gaming those systems, interactive AI kids toys, the space between an ethical subject and an object of an AI system, raising children in an AI world, cultural differences in emotional profiling, and emotional AI regulation. Those long-time listeners might be aware that my voice sounds slightly different this month. That's because I had a spout of COVID, along with several colds after kids went back to school. We're okay now, but I sound like this. If you'd like to find more episodes of the Machine Ethics Podcast, you can go to machine-ethics.net. You can contact us at hello at machine-ethics.net. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at machine underscore ethics or machine ethics podcast. And if you can, you can support us on patreon.com forward slash machine ethics. Thank you and hope you enjoy. Hi, Andrew. Uh, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Hi, Ben. If you could please introduce yourself, who you are and what do you do? Yeah, so my name's Andrew McStay. Um, I'm a professor of digital life. I work at Bangor University, which is in North Wales in the UK. I think probably the topic that we're talking about today is the work that I do on, on emotion and affect. Brilliant. Thank you very much. So the first question we always ask on the podcast is, what is AI? Oh, God. <laughs> Yeah, so I, you know, I, you know, my background, I'm come from kind of the more social kind of humanities side of things. So, yeah, I won't be giving you kind of an in-depth account of kind of mm. programming languages and all things associated with AI. But for me, I think, you know, AI is about kind of, it's about autonomous systems and it's about systems that make judgments. Um, yes, AI um, kind of overlaps with machine learning and various kind of systems that do not apply to people. But I think for me, you know, the real kind of interesting part of AI is, again, about autonomous systems, and it's about judgments made about people. Um, those judgments can be all sorts of things, but certainly from my point of view, you know, I'm interested in judgments made about how um, emotion is classified, how it's decided, and what the consequences of all of that is. And I guess that um, gets on sort of the question is of um, it might be obvious or trite to ask, but why would we want to discern emotion in the first place? Why would we want to produce some tool, some maybe AI system, machine learning system, to effectively work out what uh, human emotion is happening, whether it's from maybe a person in front of you or maybe some sort of uh, artifact that we've left behind? Yeah, so it depends um, what you mean by we or who we mean by we. Mm. Um, you know, there are lots of different actors, lots of different stakeholders with kind of different interests and different motivations. So, you know, on the, um, we'll begin with kind of the optimistic side of all of this. I think on the optimistic side, you know, there is opportunity um, for enhanced interaction with devices, with media content, with online gaming through using um, affective and emotion means. So in essence, it's kind of, um, it's an HCR, human computer interaction question in terms of how can we have better relationships with devices, with objects, you know, and potentially kind of learn something about ourselves 
in the process. Mm. Um, in terms of other motivations, yeah, I'm sure as we'll get on to, there are kind of negative implications of this. So certainly negative from, a, again, depends on your, really on your perspective on this. But yes, the kind of applications for kind of policing, for security, mm. um, for commercial exploitation, and so on and so forth. So I think in terms of the why question, the we question, yeah, it really depends on your vantage point. I like the, the 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 kind of optimistic view that you were starting with because it kind of gives me this idea of having maybe a kind of exercise assistant who kind of sees when I'm slacking off and maybe is able to kind of pump me up in some way which is somewhat effective knowing something about my personality and, and like that's the sort of thing that my mind goes to you know mm. and maybe it's not pushing me to do something that I don't want to do but it's kind of like nudging me in a way that maybe is more personal to to me um in the hope that I'm doing you know it's it's nudging me in a, in a good direction for you know because I've already set this goal and I, I want to get fitter or, or my mental my stress is is high and maybe I want to um um, do things which are going to de-stress me a bit more and I can have um, this thing that can help me do that. Um, so that, that sounds like a really useful way of, of looking at it. I'm, mm. I'm hoping. Uh, uh, is that sort of the thing that you had in mind? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, on, on the positive side, again, you know, one, um, you know, connects with kind of health and kind of mental well-being. So as you say, it could be kind of um, kind of short-term nudges just to get you over the line. So you don't mm. see if you're a cyclist climbing mountains, just to give you that kind of prompt, just to kind of um, get you over the top and kind of over onto the descent. But of course, it could be kind of long, longitudinal tracking in mm. terms of, you know, kind of a kind of, a personal kind of mental health tracker, you know, which is designed kind of to go primarily kind of stays on our own personal devices, you know, to kind of inform, um, you know, kind of how you're feeling over time and kind of parts of the day where, you know, you kind of might have been a little bit more stressed and tech than potentially you'd even realize and been able to track those patterns kind of over a period of time. So, yeah, I think, you know, in terms of um, scope for personal well-being, be it in the short term or the longer term, definitely there's kind of scope for opportunity um, with these technologies. But, yeah, again, as we'll get on to, utmost and due care is required. Mm, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's almost easier to talk about those things, which is why I was hoping that, you know, we could uh, put the case forward for, like, the, the useful and interesting and... Um, more optimistic side, I guess, first in context. Mm. Um, is that kind of how did you approach, how did you come by this topic in the first place? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. So, yeah, so as, as we kind of mentioned, I got um, the, the top of the call. Um, yeah, my background is, um, yeah, I guess kind of humanities, kind of social mm. sciences rather than um, computer science or HCR, human computer interaction. But weirdly, I got into this um, through an interest in Martin Heidegger, um, a German philosopher, also with a questionable past. Um, but he writes about moods and he writes um, about emotions too. And probably those for those on the call who are kind of aware of, um, yeah, who have philosophical philosophical background, perhaps kind of not so aware of his um, work on moods. But yeah, mm. in short, I was working on a book um, about privacy and about philosophy and how privacy can be understood in non-liberal terms. So when we think about the word privacy, we indexically think about it 
as kind of a liberal principle in terms of autonomy, freedom, self-determination, and so on. I was really interested in how other philosophical traditions and other systems, what that can tell us about privacy. That led into um, an investigation into the work of Heidegger. I stumbled across his work on moods. Um, and then at the same time, uh, this would have been around out of the early 2010s, you know, there were kind of wearables were on the rise. Quantified Self um, was mm. coming out of the Bay Area um, in San Francisco. And it just kind of seemed a really interesting overlap between this kind of work on phenomenology that Martin Heidegger did and the kind of overlap between, um, yeah, kind of the Bay, the Bay Area um, stuff going on there. So, yeah, so I kind of stumbled out over there, but then I began to focus more on the technology itself and um, other ways of theorizing and criticizing, um, yeah, all the emotion tech. Yeah, and I guess that's um, only become more important, hypermediated. It, it's progressed since then. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, I, it's so interesting. You know, I think <laughs> it's, you know, the, the, the tech itself has been around, you know, uh, well, weirdly, actually, all the way back to the 1880s, and maybe we'll do, do a historical deep dive in a bit. But I think most on this um, listening to the podcast will be aware of um, Rosalind Picard, um, who arguably is the mother of affective computing based at MIT. You know, she was kind of really kind of one of the first to bridge kind of machine learning, um, AI, and um, affect sensing. But yeah, but I think, you know, a lot of this was still kind of lab based work. And even in kind of in the early 2010s, when I kind of started thinking about the significance of these technologies, I was really wondering whether I'm kind of totally barking up the wrong tree with all of this mm. and whether, you know, whether these technologies are going to go anywhere, whether it's just kind of startups kind of playing with things coming out of um, CompSci labs. And yeah, w was this a thing? And then, you know, fast forward to today. Um, and then, you know, again, as we maybe we'll get on to, it's Article 1 of um, the forthcoming AI regulation, the proposed mm -hmm. AI regulations, um, with Amazon, Google, Facebook, etc., all having kind of separate labs um, dedicated to emotion and affect. So, yeah, even within kind of last 10 years, um, things have changed so quickly where at one point, back in 2010, is this a thing? Who knows? Um, now, yeah, it certainly certainly is a thing for um, for good and um, potentially for bad. So um, it's probably a good time. Shall we get on to the bad? <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, things like face detection and uh, uh, maybe emotion detection from a video or a face or someone in front of you. Um, there is kind of detecting things from maybe uh, text or voice. Um, so where there is maybe input from a human there can be presumably this idea of kind of teasing out what is um extra data maybe which is not necessarily coming along with the the normal speech the normal kind of uh, communication uh, mm. which is maybe uh, you know the body movement or the tone all these other things that actually are very nuanced and that uh, as a human being we kind of um, through our lives, we are always learning, you know, and, and looking and, and picking these markers up. Mm. Um, so are these are the sorts of things that um, we're talking about here, really, the kind of like, how do we program a machine to do these things? And I guess when you were saying in terms of human machine interface, it's kind of interesting because it's there's a question of then how do you then um, surface that information and how do you categorize that information which is then going to be useful for anyone and how that becomes you know 
unbiased or maybe um, mm. you know surfaced in a way which is not going to misinterpret the information or maybe um, be bigoted towards a certain group. Um, mm. I'm, trying, I'm, I'm searching for the right words here. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I wonder if there is, because um, it seems like a lot of activity in this area at the moment and um, mm. kind of a lot of kickback, um, a lot of pushback on, mm. on some uh, specific types. Um, so do, do you want to start with a kind of the thing that comes to my mind, which is the, the face detection, the emotion detection um, which seems like the obvious starting point for me. Um, you know, is, do you think there's a, a good, a good use of this and, and why is it that people have such a problem with it, um, in terms of kind of hiring, I think is the, the, the use yeah. case. I mean, it's, it's interesting. What you actually began there was with voice. And I think it was really interesting that you did that because, you know, face-based um, detection, um, face-based emotion recognition systems, yeah, certainly they're getting um, a lot of the attention, a lot of the criticism. Um, but I think in terms of the application that has um, much more chance of scaling more seriously, I think it is voice. And of course, you know, we all have smartphones. We are, many of us have home-based voice assistants. And voice is harder to code um, than faces. We will come on to faces in a moment. But mm-hmm. yeah, voice is a lot harder. So Amazon for years um, have been working on emotion recognition systems in voice. But, you know, but I think we all, we all understand those of us um, who have used an Alexa type system. Um, yeah, it doesn't always understand us as it might. So the idea that um, our mood and emotions and our feelings um, might be misjudged. It could lead to some really awkward and clearly a very annoying interaction. Mm -hmm. But I think voice will be the one that eventually scales in time. But to return back to um, the face-based analytics, yeah, why why is it causing um, such a stink? Um, I think think broadly it's, it's based on an understanding of emotion that is around kind of 50, 60 years old now. So it's based on a very simple taxonomy of facial expressions. And the problem is, is that judging a person's interior state via a palette of kind of six or seven basic facial emotion expressions is very methodologically problematic. Um, People are much richer, people are much more nuanced, but even the basic premise of inferring an emotional interior state from an expression, what's what psychologists call reverse inference, mm-hmm. is innately and inherently problematic. Um, you know, it's a slightly trite example, but you know, we don't always smile while we're happy. We have a, a variety of means and reasons for why we smile. Sometimes it's just kind of to lubricate kind of social arrangements. Um, sometimes it's a passive act. Um, you know, lots and lots of different reasons. And that's just within one regional context alone, such as the UK um, or North America and other places where, you know, this podcast um, will be listened to. Try that in Japan, which has very, very different um, ways, very different kind of systems of emotive, very different behavioral codes. Um, It becomes um, awfully difficult. So, yeah, you know, in terms of kind of these systems, these systems are based on universalizing logics of emotion um, and these kind of these ideas that there is such a universal language of expressions has roots back in Charles Darwin um, back in Duchenne 
around kind of the 1880s, 1870s. So the idea of kind of building kind of taxonomies of emotion um, with universal applicability, yeah, it has a long, long history. But in short and in conclusion, uh, why these systems are profoundly flawed is because they're based on really faulty methods. I should add that in terms of kind of work that goes on with facial expressions, um, there are a lot of emotion scientists who work on facial actual coding systems, face-based research, who again would take deep umbrage um, with um, their work being synonymous with kind of the work of Paul Ekman. You know, these kind of six and seven basic emotions. So they would, they would argue, well, actually, we have kind of much more nuanced systems that classify 50, 60, 70 mm. um, facial expressions. And that we do check these when we do our research. We do check these with kind of participants um, to see whether kind of that the emotional recognition did tally and did correlate um, with what they were thinking, feeling, and experiencing at that time. So sometimes the criticism that these technologies um, receive, it's correct, it's right, but I don't think that the way that these technologies have been applied is the end of the story. Basically, all of this has, um, yeah, a, a much kind of longer um, path ahead. Mm. And I guess it's a question of, you know, where where these sorts of systems, even if they are very good or do achieve what they're set out to achieve, you know, is it an appropriate use case? And and obviously like hiring and things like that. Mm. Is it is it useful in that context or is it kind of, does it then undermine something that we don't want to take away from that process? Does it um, kind of um, take away from the participant of that process something? Um, because it's it's no longer, for instance, in that in, um, particular kind of situation, it's no longer something that they've signed up for. It's not a usual use case. So you don't go into a, an interview and go, um, well, I'm going to talk to a human and a human's, uh, you know, I, I know something about humans and humans have a certain way of um, interpreting people's body language and voice and such mm. um, but now I'm going into this new context where maybe I actually have to change my behavior in order to play up to a system which is part of the hiring process and now it's not it's not the same as before it's this other it's not really a, a hiring interview it's this hiring interview plus and do I have to be performative you know in this context mm. how do I need to change my behavior and and it's really interesting to me you know about that kind of societal change but like that individual behavior change how do we change our behavior because of these technologies um, yeah i i agree that you know that there's a lot going on in that question yeah um, sorry uh, yeah no it's all good but yeah i you know in terms of the world of work you know you, you can think of it as a funnel um you can think of it from kind of you know kind of the initial um contact between a recruiter and um, a person who's kind of looking um, for a job role or post. You know, and that will involve, um, may involve with kind of companies such as Highview um, and Pymetrics. Um, mm. um, yeah, you know, it will involve an absence of a human. Um, so it will involve um, a video call, um, it will involve video recording. And yeah, you know, a person will be judged um, on the basis of that video call, potentially without a human ever seeing um, that video. So the screening process can and may start early. And I think, you know, it's kind of worth mentioning that in terms of kind of the scale 
of who is using these services. You know, again, it's not just kind of small companies. These are companies such as Unilever, Bank of America, you know, huge firms um, that, again, are kind of interested in essentially kind of saving labor time on the recruiting and I guess to do that slight techie term, onboarding process. Mm. But yeah, so you know, so yeah, you're kind of at, at the first stage. You have yeah, you have kind of video-based interviews um, that you know, kind of um, recording, kind of face, um, voice, and kind of behavioral um, modalities. And then yeah, and then in the interview process itself, where a person will be present, but there will be that kind of extra layer of analytics as well, making suggestions um, about mm. the performance of a candidate, and as you say, kind of in terms of kind of how they emote, how they behave, and what they do. And that does raise questions in terms of one basic principles um, of dignity in relation to autonomous sensing, but also those kind of those kind of practical and tactical issues um, of how a person does perform for a system, whether a person does over enunciate, whether a person does kind of emphasize kind of pauses and tries to kind of build almost kind of more drama into emotion. So as to game to game um, sensing systems. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Have you seen the um, the film? Oh, what's that film called? It, it's, it's about a, a guy in America who has to put on his white voice to take phone calls. And it strikes me that this is <laughs> this is what's going to happen. You have mm. you have to put on your best Queen's English, or you have to put on your best uh, I don't know whatever the equivalent would be in America. But you'd have to maybe put on like you were saying with the enunciation and pauses and things like that. And mm. and there was and you know there's this um, advice that when you're talking you should pause instead of ums and ahs because ums and ahs can be interpreted as um, you know. Where you have you're unable to think quite quick enough, or or you don't have something to say, so you yeah you end up um, doing this kind of special case performance for that interview to game the system. I mean, there's an interesting question there, there isn't there about well, what's the difference? Um, mm. so, so in terms of um, you know, kind of people from, you know, kind of different kind of subcultural groups with kind of different lexicons and kind of modes of behavior. Mm. This idea um, of conforming to a particular stereotype um, to, you know, to be that kind of successful candidate, whether it kind of involves autonomous systems or not, um, you know, that, that, that fact remains. And I think, yeah, I, I definitely got to get the idea of, having to conform to an ideal type for an autonomous system, I see that. And, you know, and typically within kind of a recruitment-based process, that's kind of the system is trailed in relation to who an ideal employee is. Mm, yeah. It'd be really interesting to go back um, to kind of each company who's using these systems to find out who their ideal employee is, you know, what their class background is, what their color background is, what their ethnicity is, and so on and so forth. Yeah, and I think it's po- possibly kind of fairly predictable what the answer would be there. But I guess, you know, when, with, you know I, with kind of companies such as Hireview, you know, it's kind of interesting that, you know, in terms of their autonomous systems, they do seem to be working to de-bias the recruitment process. Hmm. So, for example, you know, if they're, you know, if they're kind of going to recruit kind of 10 or 100 people, they do use percentage thresholds that if kind of autonomous systems are recruiting too many white men of middle age type, mm-hmm. um, then, yeah, then they'll go back and start again. Hmm. 
Yeah, and I think, you know, in terms of, you know, the kind of recruitment process as it works without autonomous systems, then I'm not always sure these kind of checks and balances are in place. So don't get me wrong, this isn't me advocating for um, autonomous sensing in the recruitment process. But I do think uh, I think the, the criticism does require a little bit closer scrutiny. I mean, the assessment of the situation requires a little bit more of a detailed analysis mm-hmm. rather than say, it's all wrong, ban the whole thing outright. Perhaps kind of see what works and what doesn't work um, and what's agreeable and what's kind of socially disagreeable. And I think that's that's possibly the way forward, both for this issue, but possibly a range of other use cases that we might get into as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think, um, yeah, it's, it's much more nuanced than... Um, the blanket reaction can be sometimes and and I guess sometimes it's just about you know what these systems actually producing at the end of the day um, and how useful that is in that in that particular use case Mm. Um, I I was wondering if we could go back to voice briefly Um, there's this idea which I think John Havens talks about a lot which Mm -hmm. is um, around about different metrics so you know using the right metrics and finding the metrics which are not necessarily just about money. Money's in there, but we can talk about metrics of happiness and health and all those sorts of things mm. um, when we're designing these systems. But we can also talk about that, you know, when we're talking about GDP and, you know, these big metrics, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's this kind of idea that, you know, there are happier or less happy countries. And it's almost interesting to me that you could maybe do a poll of, a whole, you know, population, just because you listen in to their phone calls, um, maybe you have to phone up to vote or something like that once a year. Mm-hmm. Um, and that gives you a pulse of the nation's general happiness at that point, because you can process all the voice and just pull slight things out of there. Um, this percentage of people sound more worried than average or this you know and and you can get this uh, i like this uh, i just find it interesting that you can use these kind of emotional tools to Mm. maybe kind of leverage something that actually is very very difficult to make um quantifiable at the moment um and and that's kind of you know what this whole process is it's like we're making something which is not usually quantifiable quantifiable in machines yeah. <laughs> or, or you could just ask people. Yeah, um, you mean, could do that. <laughs> you know, it's, I, you know it's, I think, yeah, you know, in term, you know, and this kind of goes to um, a fault line with, with all of these technologies um, in terms of kind of passive analysis, where you kind of think, ah, we know better than the people themselves. So let's yeah. just kind yeah. of passively monitor them and we'll pull out the verbal cues um, and you know, we'll find things that they perhaps couldn't or wouldn't be able to tell us themselves. I, I kind of err on the side of, yeah, just asking people. And I think, you know, it, it perhaps kind of, I don't know if your example was kind of a, a serious one, but certainly in terms of you collecting data about emotion in relation to um, political preferences, mm. certainly the work that we do at the Emotional AI Lab, where you know, we kind of routinely do surveys across the UK, to kind of gauge kind of how people feel about particular use cases, particular technologies, particular modalities, 
every time um, they're really concerned about the use of data about emotion um, for politics, to the extent where social media profiling and, and profiling emotion therein is of greater concern um, in political context than the use of biometrics, um, which is something that really surprised us. Um, but yeah, but any use of data about emotion um, for political messaging or understanding is, um, is definitely a red flag area. Yeah, I guess I had a more positive kind of. Fair enough. That was a very good response. Um, <laughs> I, I could just imagine. Um, yeah, I mean, however you get that information, it would be useful, wouldn't it? Um, regardless, if you just ask people, that would be good too. <laughs> I think I feel like I've been told. Um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, so. There's this whole other can of worms, which uh, we haven't actually touched on yet, which is uh, extremely interesting. And we, I think we briefly touched on it in a couple of episodes before um, in the podcast. And it's around this idea that you, as a human being, um, we are social, emotional beings, right? Um, so creating things which are able to interpret emotions more easily and react uh, presumably that's the output you know they're going to be better mm -hmm. reacting or uh, better use for that for people what's the idea around kind of attachment and making relationships with ai or ai enabled technologies um dolls or your car or you know different things it does your work play into kind of how attachment um comes about and and how we um, interact with maybe these kind of more socially apt or adept systems? It's interesting, you know, there's, there's, different, there's two parts to that. One, I think you know, we could segment along the lines of kind of um, children and adults. And I think in questions um, of um, technology, data, AI, and so on, I think children are a little kind of too often um, forgotten in these questions. Mm. And I think when it comes to children's relationships with um, objects, um, children are incredibly imaginative um, and able to project, perhaps kind of in ways that adults forget. It's not exactly a scientific observation, but mm. it's, kind of, it's certainly kind of one as parents um, that we kind of certainly observe. You know, and toys for a long time, again, hundreds of years, have kind of been built around kind of principles of automata. So the idea of kind of AI-based toys that kind of simulate, simulate kind of a life presence, yeah, is one that goes um, hundreds and hundreds of mm -hmm. years ago. So, yeah, but I think, you know, in terms of kind of where we go today, with kind of the role with datafication added to the mix, i.e. the ability to kind of store, process, interact, um, that does raise extra questions because it's not just a, a projective thing. It's kind of working in reverse as well, like kind of the child is being interpreted. So there's a profiling issue there. But I think, you know, in terms of the question that you're getting at, which is mm. more about kind of the relationship, um, and the potential for harm therein. Yeah, certainly there is that there. And I think, again, when it comes to these questions, we always have to look at who is building the technologies, who is building the services. And of course, you know, there are companies, there are corporations, you know, and they have particular values, they have particular outlooks. So take, for example, you know, a doll like Barbie. You know, the, the Mattel increasingly is um, equipping toys like Barbie with interactive abilities. At present, you know, they're not great. 
Um, children quickly become quite bored of them. Um, but, you know, we, we're very much kind of at the start of something here, you know, over the last kind of 10, 20 years. Um, mm. so these technologies, these principles of interaction, emotion, and kind of psychological interaction between subjects and objects is not going anywhere. Again, we're at the beginning of something here, not the middle and certainly not the end. So yeah, again, we have to look at kind of the values um, and the goals and the objectives um, of those who were building these systems. Um, looking at kind of something like out of Barbie, we know um, over the course of kind of the history of Barbie that it has been imbued with values. Again, sometimes these kind of have kind of racial kind of implications. They have body image implications. So in terms of kind of the psychology of the object itself, you know, the values imbued within um, that object and system that sits behind it. Yeah, they have gold, they have objectives. Um, and yeah, we need to be kind of very, very careful in terms of what children interact with. So, you know, I think, yeah, so it, it, comes, it comes down to kind of the question kind of the theory of mind. And I think, you know, our children, um, do they see these as systems as other people? Mm. Not really. Are they sure that there isn't some agency that there isn't something behind you know that plastic facade they're not sure about that either maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe it's a bit like i think when you was a kid you know you kind of you wasn't sure whether and i'm assuming this is adult listeners on the call rather than child listeners but sure. you were never totally sure that father christmas was real or wasn't real and you just kind of went with it um, and maybe there's kind of something similar there that in kind of the, 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 the kind of space between kind of the subject and an object, an object being a thing, a subject mm. being, you know, something um, imbued with kind of real life. And I think, you know, these kind of systems sit somewhere in between that, certainly from kind of a child's experiential point of view. Where we have done work, I don't know if you want to get into this. Do, do stop me. Um, no, no, it's yeah. great. Yeah, so we do, we've done quite a bit of work with parents on this. So we haven't um, done kind of empirical work with children, but we've done quite a bit of empirical work with parental views. You know, and this kind of this kind of partly is about kind of smart kind of interactive objects such as toys, um, but also safety wearables as well. You know, that kind of track affect mood, emotion, as well as kind of other measures such as location. And it's really, really interesting um, talking to parents about this because I think one, um, they're a lot more clued up um, than one would expect. And, you know, we, we did a UK national survey of around kind of two, 3,000 parents. So pretty robust sample, but we also did focus group work as well to really kind of in investigate some of the implications of what we were finding. And parents certainly, certainly have kind of real privacy concerns um, with these technologies. And they do have concerns about um, the nature of interaction that a child would have with kind of synthetic um, subjects, for, for want of a better expression. Mm. Um, but they do, they, you know, but they are quite forward-facing is, is the wrong expression. But, you know, they do see that the world that we live in is a very kind of technological environment. And, you know, they do want kind of their children to interact with objects in good and ethical ways. But it's not a case of kind of pulling back from technology. It's about better relationships with technology. Um, and it was quite surprising that, 
yeah, a few parents kind of said, no, 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 keep me, keep my children away from kind of all digital objects. Mm. Much rather, it was about terms of negotiation and interaction and ensuring that good, suitable safeguards. And of course, regulations are in place rather than kind of leaving it to companies to govern themselves. They, yeah, parents certainly didn't like that idea. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and it, it kind of brings me back to the behavior thing again, where there was this news article where they were finding um, children who were exposed to things like Alexa were using polite language less because, mm. you know, it wasn't a requirement of the system that you ask it nicely. So, you know, Alexa, play the song I like, whatever. Mm. Um and we start dropping pleases and thank yous and things like that. Um, and the idea that you then have to build that in to the system or you, you take a responsible view of, you know, what's the effect of this system on a whole generation of people, essentially. Yeah. Um, you know, and is that the situation we actually want to build? Is It's, it's quite difficult to discern, but it's... it's 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 the sort of thinking that needs to occur, you know, um, and it seems like you're you're kind of looking in that space and 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 make and seeing what's you know what's available, what what can we do, what can't we do, what what, what buttons can we push. It's a really interesting question. I'll have to go back and listen to the conversation you had with Joanna Bryson on this. Um, so, you know, from Joanna's point of view, Joanna's point of view, mm. you know, her, her view is that, you know, in terms of kind of AI, these kind of um, synthetic personalities, you know, she she kind of uses the language of slaves. I I don't think she I don't think she's kind of referring to um, kind of race and historical abuse, but mm. rather like, you know, these kind of systems are objects they're not subjects so in terms of the idea of being polite and treating them with kind of as if they kind of had subjectivity i'm guessing that she was um very much against that point of view but yeah. but yeah but i you know it's yeah i kind of see the other way someone like kate darling for example um i think she's based at mit mm. you know she would take a, a very different view and she she would probably possibly use kind of language of kind of quasi objects where it's kind of neither object nor subject and you know possibly closer to um a pet um than you know than a human but you know so sitting somewhere between so yeah and of course you know in terms of um yeah we you know how we want to raise our children to kind of um, what they learn from objects and possibly um, take into the classroom and take into kind of interactions with humans. Yeah, it does raise kind of all sorts of issues. And I guess we'll see whether this is in the fullness of time, whether this is um, something of kind of real importance to raising children um, or not. Mm. I, I, I suspect not. Um, but yeah, we'll see, I guess. Yeah, I guess it might come down to that. Uh, distinction you were talking about you know what is this distinction of the system here I have this kind of um, idea which I've I think I voiced in in one of the conversations I've had um, on the podcast around your personal assistant being personal to you and travels with you ubiquitously through the systems the fabric of the uh, technology that we have around us so mm -hmm. uh, you can imagine you have you know, something speaking from your phone, but you step into a car and now it's part of the car mm. or you step out and you start watching a screen and it's helping you on the screen. It just travels kind of with you. Um, mm -hmm. And when you get to that point where you have a system which is part of the kind of the fabric of 
uh, your life. I guess a kind of mobile phone is already sort of that device, mm. but which also um, is able to um, kind of socially interact with you, I guess, it, it, on a more, it, just because it has the ability to, to take more of that input that you give it. And I think we talked about this briefly with uh, uh, Bertram Marley, one of the episodes. Mm. Um, <laughs> I feel like I've, I've hit a brick wall of what I was thinking about. My instant go-to them is um, Spike, Jones, Spike Jones's film, Her, you know, with that mm. has, you know, kind of the, um, the personality Samantha, you know, but of course, you know, the, you know, these ideas of kind of AI kind of personalities, um, you know, they kind of sit behind things kind of such as Siri called um, Alexa and so on and so forth. So, yeah, so the idea of kind of, um, you know, kind of cloud-based um, personality that kind of moves and travels with us, I think it's an idea that's been around for some time. Um, and, you know, inev- inevitably with these conversations, um, you know, you, you, you can never really kind of bet against the future, you know, 100 years, who knows. But I think, you know, these ideas have been kind of kicking around, you know, very, very popular, I think, you know, for the last kind of 10, 15 years. Um, at present, I don't see any personality or any synthetic, synthetic agent that I have any chance of having any meaningful um, interaction with. Um, mm. So I think, you know, I, I think, you know, you can future gaze, you know, 50, 100 um, and beyond years. Um, but I think as it stands today, yeah, it's not kind of, it's not an idea or kind of a principle that I kind of entertain too seriously. I think, you know, I think perhaps the kind of better way of putting it is that, you know, of all the kind of possible outcomes and eventualities and issues that we might want to look at, I think we've got ones kind of um, a little bit kind of close to home, closer to kind of everyday life that need to be attended to. Um, awesome. So I've kind of run out of questions. Is there, or like things I've written down anyway, are there some things that we haven't talked about which you'd like to discuss? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 should, have, I should have made a list myself here. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, in terms of kind of the international dimension of questions of emotion, I think sometimes that's missed. So, mm-hmm. you know, particularly if you kind of spend any time on Twitter, you know, you're kind of tapping into some of the discussion around emotion. Yeah, it's very, it's very much kind of um, a Europe-US thing, and mm. it's so interesting to look um, at other regions around the world. I'm, I'm learning a lot from the project that we're doing with universities in Japan, in terms of kind of how emotion sense and affect systems work out there in relation to different behavioral cues, gestures, but even kind of the idea of what a basic set of emotions are. So, you know, in kind of um, UK, Europe, and US, you know, we kind of look at happiness, joy, anger, disgust, all these kind of things. Um, yeah, in Japan, you know, one of the basic emotions that companies there list is sorrow. And I just, you know, I find that such kind of an interesting idea that in terms of, not just in terms of kind of formal profiling of people and what they do, but just looking at it from the other side, just the experience of emotional life itself, it's so, it's so radically different around the world. So the idea that, you know, you can have kind of a set of kind of cloud platforms, you know, Amazon, Google, Facebook, um, having a universalizing presence in every region around the world when the experience of kind of emotion subjectivity is so wildly different around the world. Yeah, it's the the present the premise of kind of emotional AI is is very, very, very um problematic. 
Um, yeah. I guess as well, you know, we haven't we haven't talked about kind of the regulatory context, and you know maybe that's com- a conversation for another time. But certainly, it's you know in GDPR, um, you know that big um, European beast of regulation and legislation. Emotion didn't really factor. Um, I think they were in kind of one of the um, two of the recitals, but they weren't in any of the articles. Mm. With the the, the proposed EU AI regulations, um, emotion profiling um, is in Article One. It's slap bang at the top. Um, You know, it is kind of discussed in terms of kind of risky and kind of high risk activities, particularly in relation to work, um, educational technologies and children's toys. So, yes, I think in terms of kind of these topics and these issues becoming mainstream, it's it's happening a lot quicker than I expected it to. You know, when I began looking at this 10 years ago to where we are now to it being kind of slap bang in Article 1, the proposed AI um, AI regs, that was a real surprise. Um, and do you think that's um, you know is that something that you would have wanted to see from that regulation? I probably want to see a little bit more. I think you know it's you know the, the regulations you know likely five years to go um, until you know it's kind of fully completed, fully done. Um, I think there's going to be a lot of changes in relation to the um, emotion um side of this some of the language just isn't great it isn't right i think there's going to be a lot of jostling around of use cases and i think basically finer analysis um of what emotional ai is and what um emotion profiling actually is is required yeah i have to choose my language carefully here but yeah i think a little bit more expertise um, on the emotion side of things, I think will be very helpful um, to kind of those drafting this legislation. But it's it's hard. I, I do yeah. work um, with IEEE, um, you know, that's kind of building standards in this area or trying to build standards. And as soon as you scratch the surface with kind of how to regulate, how to build standards, what's good, what's not good, um, what, what seems kind of really vanilla in one issue, such as mm-hmm. gaming, for example, quickly can um, can raise kind of all sorts of kind of issues. Just to give you just one example, you know, you might have an application for home video games. You know, so it's home-based entertainment, what's the problem? But in terms of kind of machine learning that's done on expressions, potentially of children, certainly adults, those algorithms will be deployed elsewhere in other contexts, um, potentially harmful contexts. So again, you know, the quickly um, you kind of raise kind of problems in terms of what the actual thing is that you're trying to regulate and sort. So yeah, there's going to be a lot, the, the, the IREG's got a long way to go yet, but it's, it's a good start uh, and I'm glad to see it end there. Great. Um, the last question we ask on the podcast, Andrew, is mm-hmm. what is it that scares you about this AI technologies mediated into society and what really excites you? Yeah, so in terms of um, the scary stuff, um, the dystopian stuff, mm. actually, no, not dystopian. No, dystopian kind of gives the sense of something that won't come to pass. Um, no, I think actually what we have is coming to pass. And it, it's about ubiquitous autonomous systems that judge emotion and get things wrong. Um, you know, so we talked about kind of the world of work. We talked about kind of how kind of emotion systems can um, yeah, prescribe. But yeah, basically, it's the ubiquitous nat- nature of this that I kind of, it's, it's the scale. And I think that's, yeah, you, you wanted a simple answer, a simple question. Mm. It's the potential scale of all of this. Mm. I think, and I think that kind of actually quite neatly leads me to kind of the kind of more 
positive side, what excites me with all of this. I think enhanced interaction between objects and subjects, between people and technologies, it's something that has an inevitable characteristic and it doesn't have to be bad. It can be good. The way that this works is through allowing people greater control over systems, trying to do everything as local as possible and allowing maximum control through simple means. I think, yeah, it's about enhanced interaction, more meaningful interaction, um, which can generate pleasure, it can generate joy, it can generate self-learning. There is scope for positivity with all of this. Mm. Have you got any examples of that? It sounds quite abstract at the moment. It does. And I, unfortunately, it is pretty abstract. But, you know, what I have in mind is systems where we can label our own experiences. So mm. rather than having a system which just kind of tags on one of six emotions, um, you know, two kind of, um, you know, a, a kind of mood, emotion, whatever it might be. Yeah. Um, the idea that we just kind of, you know, we can have a greater interaction with our technologies, again, by being a bit more active in terms of how we kind of label, annotate, you know, make sense of those kind of patterns over periods of time. I think a more bottom-up um, approach to these technologies is the one that's going to be the one that's going to win out in the long term. That's certainly kind of the vision and kind of the idea that I have for these technologies. I think the idea of kind of universal universalizing logics is one that hopefully we will get past to something that is more inductive, more local, more ethnocentric, more respectful, and one where kind of users can input and annotate themselves. Great. Thank you so much for spending this time with me and the listeners. If people want to find out about you, uh, contact you, listen to you, how do they do that? Yeah, so, uh, well, yeah, thanks, Ben. It's, it's been a real pleasure. Um, in terms of kind of contacts, um, have a look on the Emotional AI website. So it's emotionalai.org. Um, contact details are there. Um, Twitter, I'm at DigiAd. Um, of course, I have the Emotional AI Twitter pages as well. But, but yeah, if you're interested, do reach out and do get in touch. Sweet, thank you. Um, I think I feel like my mind is still kind of processing everything we've, we've talked about. So um, uh, it's giving me a lot to, lot to think about. So thank you so much for your time and um yeah i'll speak to you next time super bad thanks welcome to the end of the podcast thanks again to andrew for spending his time with us please do check out his work and if you'd like to listen to more episodes in this vein then go to episode 30 with julia musbridge and also episode 37 social robots with bertram marley i think it was great and really funny that that andrew wouldn't take some face value stuff from me and push back maybe when I was being more devil advocate. However, I do feel like maybe his answers were quite diplomatic and maybe I could have pushed a little bit harder how emotional AI will it will affect us all in the future. If you'd like to hear more of my thoughts and help support the podcast, you can go to patreon.com forward slash machine ethics. Thank you so much for listening. Stay safe and I'll see you next time.